Hi everyone, welcome to the 28th episode of the Slow Spin Society podcast. As always, I'm Fabian, here with Paul, as always. Yeah, I'm kind of here. <laughs> kind of here, half here. And uh, <laughs> yeah, today is going to be a big episode, a big, massive, massive episode about the Olympics. Well, maybe not that massive. Strap in, boys, we're going in deep. Yes. <laughs> okay, ooh. But it's going to be <laughs> about the Olympics, but... If you want to hear more about the history of Olympic pictograms, so the symbols of the sports, new movies in the cinemas that we want to watch and have watched, and even a new Patreon tier, then make sure to check out the pre-show. You can access the extended conversation at patreon.com slash slowspinsocietypodcast, or by subscribing directly on Apple Podcasts. Yes. Okay, so as I told you, uh, it is a really, really big episode. It would have been already a pretty, like bulky chunky episode but one of our patreon members and also discord members he put together some notes for us and with a lot of detail so marius thanks a lot for all those notes and yeah we're gonna get into what happened uh in those 2020 slash 2021 track cycling olympics so the notes that we received from the Marius are very, very detailed and about five pages long. Or I actually checked 3,500 words. So this guy <laughs> really did his research. And yeah, if there are more, if there are other people more interested in Olympics than us, it's probably him. But <laughs> yeah. And yeah, so we'll start with the Izu Velodrome in Japan. So this is the velodrome that was initially planned to be a movable velodrome specifically made for the Olympics, but it turned out to be too much work and too expensive for Japan, who have already spent like bunch of money on yeah. everything for the Olympics so far. So the original plan was to have a velodrome in Tokyo that would have been movable later. But yeah, it was just too expensive. So they used the Izu velodrome that is it's like it's like three hours away uh, by car from Tokyo. Yeah. And it's a really, really good velodrome. Yeah, that was saw some some good action there. Yeah. So the Izu Velodrome was initially designed by American architects, Gensler Architects, and the track itself was planned by German architect Ralf Schurman. And so the Schurman family they built tracks for three generations with his father. So Ralph's father was a sprinter himself, and he said that as an architect you need to know what you build, for who you build, and for what exact reason you build it. So they have built many tracks since 1925 and have a lot of knowledge in this field, having done this since over, yeah, almost a hundred years now, a century. And as far as, as we know, the whole family is deeply connected to the sport and are all riding track bikes. Yeah. So they really know what they're built. I mean, that's, I think, kind of secret in ingredient to making good bikes, good track bikes, good products in any field, right? You have to be a fan of the field so you know what people want and what people would like. Especially for something that technique. But yeah, yeah, it's not even his father who told that. His grandfather. Oh, his grandfather. Yeah, that 1925. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's an old father. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, the the track itself is made out of Siberian pine. So it's a really, really hard wood. And because the wood only grows in short summer periods and then gets seeded in long cold winters. 
if if you're asking like how expensive that kind of wood can be, just know that a tree needs to be between 120 and 150 years old, big enough to use as a building material to make a few planks out of it. So just look at how many planks there's in the velodrome and yeah, 150 years of waiting to get those trees. That must be an expensive wood. <laughs> yes. The wood doesn't crack or move when the temperature or humidity change, and it has a low thermal conductivity. So it is basically the perfect wood for a velodrome. Indeed. And yeah, apparently the wood is very fast. That's, that's why there are so many new world records seen at this Olympics. Felt like almost every single event had new record breaking speeds and times. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's a lot of, lot of good records this year. The only problem, uh, so I haven't checked the source of that, but riders' apartments were not really good. So that was the apartment that was used in the 1964 Olympics, and they're not renovated. They're dark, humid, and not that clean, apparently. <laughs> There's been a lot of things around the Olympic Village and apartments of athletes. So I guess those are different apartments because they're three hours away of Tokyo. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know if that's true. Uh, I will have to ask uh, the maybe a, an athlete on Instagram or something. But. <laughs> I also saw that like these Olympics are supposedly the most environmentally friendly i mean maybe not the most environmentally friendly they said but they had the most use of renewable materials out of all the olympics so far <clears throat> like the, the beds were beds yeah, the beds were made out of recycled material the well i mean i don't know what else there is but everything was made out of recycled material i should have researched this more before talking but i, I read like a list and everything that could possibly be made out of recycled material was made out of recycled material even the metals were made out of the medals were made out of recycled phones. Yeah. That's, I think that's pretty cool as well. <laughs> yeah. The the medals were made out of recycled, like, smartphones and uh, smartphones, laptops, all that kind of stuff. And I think I've seen a comment on Reddit about that saying that, so you're telling me that every medal in the Olympics... I've seen at some point some porn in its life because it's been like in a computer or in a phone. That's amazing. I'm hanging around someone's neck now for being the fastest person in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so a little bit of numbers before we, we dive into more of the bikes and like what happened and everything. Uh, peak power for these Olympics has been around 2,500 watts for men and 1,500 watts for women. That's a lot of watts. Uh, that is a lot of watts. Yeah. Yeah, so 2,500 watts is about equivalent to a professional, so like, yeah, keyword being professional, hairdryer, or close to three full, full-blown gaming PCs running at the same time. There's a Pretty interesting video of, uh, I think he's an ex-pro cyclist now, but a German ex-pro track cyclist, Robert Furstemann. Oh, There's yeah. A video of him 
running, yeah, powering a toast, a toaster for like a minute or something until it pops the toast out, powering it with his own legs on a, on like a, uh, stationary bike. And yeah. this guy's legs are like the size of my head and even wider, each of them, like his thighs. <laughs> and this guy was sweating and then huffing and puffing while powering the toaster. And at yeah. the end, it, at the end, they had like, they calculated how much uh, energy he produced and such, and it was insane. Isn't his nickname Quadzilla? <laughs> Probably. Probably. But yeah, uh, insane dude. So, woman reached approximately 70 kilometers an hour and men over 80 kilometers an hour. Which is like faster than many amateurs on a downhill section pedaling with their highest possible gear. 80 kilometers an hour. That is... That sounds crazy to me for something that is not downhill. Even me, when I was doing 60k an hour, I was like, that's crazy, I'm going way too fast. Yeah, right. And, uh, then, and then they're doing 80 between a bunch of other people. That's, yeah, that's really scary. Yeah, so when you go like full out speed on the track bike, let's say on, on some like flat street, then you can go maybe 50, 60 kilometers an hour, right? Like as, a, as, a, as someone like us. So I think my top speed like was like 51 or something. And I already thought that was insanely fast. But then like the Peloton and, and the Tour de France or something, they go that speed the entire time. Just like casually cycling, like, <laughs> not even sprinting. And then when they sprint, they go like 80 plus or something. And yeah, so the difference from like 30 kilometers an hour to 50 is pretty big, right? For us, the effort. But then 50 to 80 is just insane. Yeah. You're 20 kilometers away, 20 kilometers an hour away from a freaking 100. And only 300 kilometers per hour away from 400. <laughs> that's, that's pretty fast. Thank you, Captain Obvious. <laughs> but yeah, if you want to see like speeds like that, you should watch this guy called Safa Brian on YouTube. He just goes downhill and goes really fast. True, true. And he, he's been doing... Um, gravel recently too yeah but it's, it's crazy when i watch the videos of him going downhill on the road on his road bike and he's you can see he has the speed on his on you can see the speed on the video it's like 75 kilometers an hour that's i don't know what it is that's like 45 miles per hour let's say and he's still like like pedaling as fast as he can to go faster <laughs> i'm like bro calm down you're already going 75 k's an hour but apparently not enough <laughs> not enough so christina vogel she's a german commentator and former track pro she said that like track track riders can easily ride with a tubular pressure of around 25 bar which is around 360 psi on this velodrome and this is beneficial if the rider likes the feeling of harder tires which to a certain point also gives you less rolling resistance and makes you yeah faster so to say but she said that modern track tubulars can take around 30 bar or 435 psi which is a significant amount higher than 25 bar or 30, 360 psi but yeah these can eventually explode on the track which she tested herself so it's like <laughs> kind of a you know it's like a game of balance well how high yeah. you go you take the pressure and how high the risk of blowing a tire is dude 25 bars the That's absolute max i put into a tire or even a tubular for that matter was I think 11 bars. 
Yeah, for me it was like 10 or something. But 25 is just riding on rocks. It's just like if you if you have if you bump a single thing that has like a pointy part, you will just blow up. <laughs> Scary. But I want to try yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you probably need some special tubulars for that, but Yeah, for sure. Like like the In... ones from from the hour record that only last one time. <laughs> yeah, probably. I don't know if at some point it kind of has an impact on your will, you know? On the rim, or what? Yeah, on the rim. Hmm. The fact that there is so much pressure in that tire. I mean, that tubular. But yeah, I don't, I'm not expert, but 25 bars just sounds like a freaking ton lot for me. <laughs> it does, yeah. But I think, I think they know what they're doing, right? Yeah, probably. If you haven't watched the Olympics, we're going to talk about the six main events that happen during every Olympics, basically. So there is sprint, team sprint, Karen, team pursuit, Omnium, and the medicine. We're going to go into a brief explanation of what every type of race is. So when we talk about it later, it's easier for you guys to understand. And if you want to rewatch the, uh, the event, you can actually know why are they racing for kinda. Hi guys, Aiden Paul here. Uh, I just wanted to let you know that if you already know all about uh, the six events in the Olympics, you know how it goes, you know the rules, etc. You can just skip this part and go directly to, I believe, 31 minutes into the episode. It's a quite long episode, so if you want to skip that part, it's no big deal. And then you'll see we talk about the bikes and even that happens in, in this Olympics. But yeah, let's start with the sprint. So the sprint is a 200 meters race. And for the qualifiers, you have like 200 meters, as I said, but you have a flying lap too. So they do one lap around the track where they just try to get their pace and get into gear, kind of. And then from the starting line, they just go full sprint mode for 200 meters. The track in Izu is 250 meters. Uh, this is also where you can see if you ever seen pictures of athlete track standing in the middle of the track. That's where it usually happens when it's like not qualifiers, but like official race. The 1v1 sprint this year, though, weren't really dominated by track stand challenge uh, because I mean, we usually see those, but not that time. No, the tactic kind of changed every year and this year especially we had some really really big ratios some team were like doing 70t chain rings <laughs> so <laughs> yeah <laughs> and so yeah with the instant ratios and the fact that you need that momentum to get into gear like starting with a track stand is just not good for you so you can't really surprise your opponent uh, with a super fast sprint start on such a ratio. Yeah, not that popular this year. No. And yeah, I think in the, in the past you used to see, like, yeah, there were like these track stand, like, like stare-offs where you would track stand and, and see who moves first and such. But I remember in the past there were also like a few occasions where people would just sprint from the start and, and surprise the other person. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And just win like that. But that wasn't a thing either this time. 
And but yeah, if you don't know anything about the Olympics or the individual sprints, it can look weird the first lap when they go slow and maneuver around each other and look back the entire time. You're like, did the race already start? What's going on here? And then only in the final lap when the bell starts ringing, that's when they actually go fast. It's probably the weirdest event to look at. <laughs> yeah, if you don't know anything about it. Yeah. And in this case, this year's individual sprints for men's, the final final sprint was between two Dutch Dutch racers who who uh, managed to yeah get to the final in the heats. And so this was between Jeffrey Hochland and Harry Lefreise, I think. Yeah, ha- yeah, these two. And yeah, so they were teammates for many years, and in the end, they were fighting for gold. And in the end, Harry Lefreise won. But one of the Dutch people, one of the Dutch racers, I think it was Jeffrey actually, not Harry, but Jeffrey was pushing out so much power during the race that at the end he couldn't even walk anymore. That his team had to unclip him from the bike because his legs just couldn't move. Actually, it might have been Harry. I didn't pay attention to that. But Harry was the one who he got gold in the in the end. But he was playing catch up until the very last second when he pulled out, pushed out so much power. He just slipped in, slipped ahead. It was insane to watch in real like live. But yeah, yeah, gold and silver for Dutch team. He needed a granola bar probably after that. Yeah, or or like the um, what's his name? What's the the Belgian guy's name who got our record? Uh, Mercs? No, the the new one. Uh, Voucher I something. Forgot. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, the the Belgian guy after the hour record, uh, after he broke the hour record in 2018, he drank. The first thing he drank afterwards was a coke. Oh yeah, sure, I remember that. <laughs> okay, that's probably a nice feeling. Yeah. So next up, we have the team sprint. I'm gonna let you explain that. So the team sprint, as the name gives away, is between two teams, two cyclists for the women and three for the men. And they just race three laps around the track. And yeah, the way it works, even in the velodrome, even though it's indoor, there's wind resistance, all of that. So after each lap, the, the one on the front like peels off, it goes up the embankment of the velodrome and then swings back around the other rider so that they can take turns taking the lead, right? Yeah. And yeah, this... This is also for the for the pacing and everything, and the winning team is determined by the time of the last teams of the team's last rider when they cross the finish line. So normally these these races are done at the same time. So both teams are on the velodrome at the same time, but they start at different ends. So they never actually like overtake each other unless one of them is super super fast, which never happens, of course. Yeah, and it's really cool to see because I think it also helps the individual teams. If they if they know that there's another team on the track, it's like for motivation to go faster, and yeah, the the race is a test of like the teams, of course, the pure speed, the coordination of swapping out the lead, and yeah, just who's seeing who's fastest, I guess. It's a pretty dope event to watch because you have, in the case of men's, three riders of each team, so six riders total on the track, and the fact they're they're both going the same direction, but you know, they started at each end of the track and you have usually the, you have a, a camera in the dead center of the track that shows you like which team leads and which team is a little bit behind because they are taking the time of the last rider, the moment where they switch, the moment when the first rider becomes last 
second rider becomes first. It's super technical and the speed they just like move out and then roll back in into that into that train, you know, it, it's like super, super technical. They probably don't even look, you know, they just feel that, oh, yeah, it's probably the right moment to calm back. Yeah, and they really, they have to like time it perfectly because if the last, the timing depends on when the last rider crosses the finish line. So if the last rider is a bit too far apart from the other rider, then they will have to work even harder to catch up and they will lose like the, the benefit of being in the other's, other person's yeah. slipstream. So if they time it perfectly, right, they, they lose a minimal amount of, of power and speed. And they are centimeters away from yeah. each other. It's during, crazy. During the men's individual sprint between the two Dutch guys, Harry Lefreise and Jeffrey Hochland, at one point, one of them was behind the other on the, on the higher part of the, the, the embankment. And he mm -hmm. just turns super sharp to the left and goes in, on the inside of the, the, the track, but he yeah. barely misses the guy in front, his, his rear wheel. He barely, like, almost touches it because he swings inwards so, so narrowly. And it's really a game of, like, taking risks as well, I, then, I suppose. Yeah. Oh man, but yeah, that was crazy. <laughs> really interesting to watch these events. <laughs> yeah, I know, they're cool. The next one is Kirin. So it comes from Japanese Kirin. It's like the kind of the same event. It was introduced, I don't remember when, um, into the Olympics, but it comes from Japanese Kirin. So it's seven riders, it's a six lap race. Uh, so it's a paced race. So you have like a Derny. Now it's usually like an electric motorbike, kind of. And so that paces the riders for the first three laps and then gradually it increase uh, the speed as the cyclists like maneuver and try to, you know, like get into the right position. And it's usually because it's a pace race, they usually have really, really heavy gears. So the pacer accelerates to 50 kilometers an hour or 31 miles an hour at the end of lap three. And then they have three other laps to just sprint, basically. And they have big ratios and you're going to see them really. It's really a battle for the first place. It's really like a full sprint for three laps. And it's a lot of strategy and blocking each other. And it's it's also pretty impressive to watch. But yeah, so Kirin, Team Sprint, and Sprint are the sprint events. So the one when you have times recorded and you can break world records and all that stuff. So the previous ones, those are sprint events, and now we also have endurance events. And the Team Pursuit is an endurance event over four kilometers within the velodrome between two teams of four riders each. And yeah, it's on the, they are, they have to overtake each other to beat their time to win. And each team starts on the opposite side of the track. And yeah, like with the other events, it's unlikely that they will overtake all of them because, you know, they're kind of on equal terms, but they can still beat their times by a few seconds or to a few hundred milliseconds. And like with the previous team sprint event, that there's also the, the, um, the aspect of having to change the lead out rider 
So the one on the front goes to the back, etc. And this goes on for four kilometers, yeah. Yeah, and I don't think, because I've seen the qualifyings for those, and sometimes the strategy was to... You have four riders starting the race, and then you had one that was pulling the others really hard for, like, at the beginning. And then it peeled away, but wasn't going to finish the race with the others, you know? Yeah. So sometimes you start with four riders and only three or even two finish. I don't know the exact rules, like how many how many riders needs to finish the race to be validated. But yeah, it's not all of them, at least. Yeah, some interesting strategies. And then we have the Omnium. And the Omnium is... It's a mess. <laughs> <laughs> so it's the biggest endurance event uh, out there. And yeah, the, the Omnium is four races. So you have the scratch race, the tempo race, the elimination, and the point race. So every race is on the same day. And so the same riders attend the four races, right? Mm-hmm. Then at the end of every race, they get awarded points. And at the end of the day, one was the most point, obviously, win. The scratch race is the most straightforward format. Um, all the riders, they start together at the starting line. And it's the first to finish. It's a 10 kilometer for men and 7.5 kilometer race for women. Really, really easy. for So the first gets... I don't know how many points and the second, I don't know how many points. And then you have like your first batch of points, right? So next up you have the tempo race. Again, it is 10 kilometers for men and 7.5 kilometers for women. The first rider across the line in each lap after the four laps is awarded points. Riders can also earn 20 points for lapping the field, which isn't that common to be honest. So that's second. Then you have the elimination race. Fabian, you want to take that one? Yeah. And in this one, it is, as the name gives away, an elimination race. So the last rider of every second lap is eliminated. And this is decided by the last rider's reel crossing the line. So after every two laps, the person at the end is eliminated unless until there's one person left, I suppose. They wear transponders on their head tubes of the bike, so each rider, and then this calculates when they are eliminated or not and it gives a signal for them to exit the track because there's a bunch of riders and they cannot always it often is like a photo finish so to say so the transponder makes it as accurate as possible and yeah tells the riders while they are on the track that they are eliminated and there's no yeah not much confusion at all yeah usually like flash red or something so the rider can see it and just get out of the track safely yeah. Finally, the point race. It's 30 kilometers for men, 20 kilometers for women. And they are awarded points along the way, like during the entire race. So the first four finishers in these sprints are awarded five, three, two, and one point, respectively. Uh, if a rider laps the field, they're awarded 20 points again. And in the last lap, points are doubled. So it you can change everything in the in the last lap, really. So you usually see a lot of people that 
will try to be first or second or like in the four first athletes uh, during the entire event to get like as much point as possible. And you also have riders that sometimes get at the back of the field to get back some energy, you know, like be preserved of the win because everybody is in front of them. And then they will try to make some points at the last lap. So that's also like a strategy and it's a an interesting event to see the point race because you're going to see them really like sprinting a few meters before the finish line to get points and then they drop back you know they they they, they step back a little bit they rest for a lap and then they do it again and yeah it looks it, it looks intense <laughs> yeah it can be like a, yeah it is a, it is a very strategic event because you can be like getting a point here and there during the normal laps and then you want to save your energy for the last one and then you put like all your eggs in one basket as they say like you take the big risk of okay now i'm going to get number one in the final lap and then you will get 20 points yeah or like whatever yeah so it really depends on individual style then as well i suppose and finally there is the madison race and this is the one at the end i think of the entire track event and this is each team, so each country's team, sends two riders to race 50 kilometers for the men and 30 kilometers for the women in an endurance relay. So for 50 kilometers for men, that's 200 laps because Izu is 250 meters. And for women, that's 120 laps, 120 uh, times around the velodrome, which is a lot for two cyclists. And the way it works in this, in this relay is that one member races and the other one slows down. And then, yeah, they rest and while they're slowing down, of course, and eventually they're pushed back into the race with using a, a hand sling. So the other racer, the one going fast, reaches out their hand into the back, grabs the other member's hand, and they like pull them forward so they have extra momentum to go faster again. And this happens for 50 or 30 kilometers. And yeah, I've, it's really cool to see how they grab the hand and they, they, it really looks like they're pulling them forward with all their power almost, and they get a real noticeable boost. Yeah, they do. They do. And it's also sometimes when you have that slingshot action that uh, there's a lot of crashes too. Yeah, yeah. It's in like track and field in the Olympics as well. I mean, you don't see it in Olympic level anymore, but in like amateur level or, or high school level, there's the race where you have to hand hand the baton, like the little stick to the next person. And that in like as high school or when you're amateur or beginner or whatever, there's lots of times where you'd like drop it or you don't catch it properly or you, you run too fast ahead of the person giving you the stick. And hmm. yeah, that can happen a lot in this type of race where they're going crazy speeds and they have to cycle with one hand while turning, while looking forward and grabbing another person. Yeah. It's very, very technical. Yeah. The Mandison was an Olympic event for 2000, 2004, 2008, but it was dropped ahead of the 2012 London Olympics, partly for the reason of equality, as there was no equivalent for women at the time. But finally, in Tokyo here, men and women uh, will participate in the Mandison respectively. So that's pretty cool that we see like a woman version of that. Yeah, so it really is like a historical change. Yeah, definitely. So yeah, those are the six uh, 
things. Yeah, events. <laughs> events <laughs> for the Olympics. And yeah, if you already knew all of that, then congrats. No, you made it half an hour into the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> so now on to part one, finally, part one. <laughs> oh, part one, let's go. Interesting that happened that during the track events and cycling events. Yeah, and I put into those lists, like, mainly the, the, the world records and things along that because like we can't talk about everything so much happened and first would be the german woman's team that destroyed absolutely shattered the world record by three seconds in the team pursuit qualifying and then <laughs> they went almost two seconds faster in the actual race getting the gold and breaking another world record i mean the same world record but for a second time yeah so they br they broke the world record one time and they they set up a new world record and then they broke their new world record again by almost two seconds so it's crazy they, they beat the original world record by five seconds almost five seconds that's, that's massive yeah if you look at like the races between like men individual sprints or something it's always like blah 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 he won by 0.1 a second or whatever, like tiny, tiny margins. And this yeah. time, and in this case, they beat the world record by five seconds. Five full seconds almost. That was insane. Yeah. That was insane. On August 3rd, the men's team sprint event, the Dutch team came out on top with a new Olympic record over three laps, then won the gold later. And that was a good, again, Olympic record, a new thing. Yeah. And then in the women's team pursuit heat, uh, Great Britain set a new world record uh, at 4 minutes, 6 seconds, 748, as they beat the United States. But the world record actually <laughs> didn't belong to Great Britain for long, as the following it, Germany again! <laughs> <laughs> Takes um, yeah, they finished the 4 kilometers in... Four second, uh, four minutes, six seconds, one hundred sixty-six, taking the world record back. Yes. What the hell? <laughs> the women's team is crazy. So in the finals, it was Germany's team with Franziska Brause, Lisa Brennauer, and Lisa Klein and Mieke Kröger, who won the gold medal in four minutes and four seconds and two hundred forty-two milliseconds. Another world record for the team that already broke it three times in two days. Three times they broke the wor world record in two days. So they were only going faster each time. Yeah. I mean, what kind of motivation do you have at that point? <laughs> to beat the fucking Brits. <laughs> 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 They're like, oh, look at their fancy bike. Fuck yeah. that. <laughs> we have big legs. We go fast. <laughs> <laughs> okay. And then uh, Jeffrey Hoogland and Harry. Uh, you need to say that. <laughs> Jeffrey Hochland and Harry Lefreise. Thank you. <laughs> of the Netherlands. So they set a blistering sprint pace for the 200 meter sprint with both crossing at 9.215 seconds. Exactly a new Olympic record again. Yeah. So like they were, they both set in different heats. So they, they one was in a heat with three other riders, four other riders. And then the other one was as well with three other riders. And they both beat the Olympic record with the exact same time. 9 seconds and 215 milliseconds. Exact speed across two different races. That's uh, mad. 
how is that possible? <laughs> like, up, like robots. Yeah, robots. They up to the millisecond, hundredth of a millisecond. That's insane. I don't get it. Yeah. I mean, it's chance, of course, but you know, maybe maybe Illuminati or something going on. <laughs> and then uh, Italy made history as they broke the team pursuit world record, uh, riding three minutes forty-two second three hundred seven taking gold against Sweden. Yes, lots of lots of world records and Olympic records break, broken again. Yeah. Uh, so these were all the track events, but just quickly, there are two interesting things that happened with the road cycling event. So number one was the women's road race. And in this case, the, the person who got gold is Austrian Kiesenhofer. And she got gold, for, uh, she's an Austrian, and she's not even part of a pro team. So although she is a time trial champion of Austria. She's not part of any pro team or anything. More or less, you could say, kind of like a semi-amateur, semi-pro. And she got gold. So she split off at the start of the race, 137 kilometer race. She split off with two others. And in the last 40 kilometers, she went completely solo. And yeah, beat everyone else. And then the second person, the person who came in second, Silver, was uh, a Dutch cyclist. Annemiek van Flauten from the Netherlands and she thought she was first when she landed when she arrived when she crossed the finish line because there was a problem with the communication system for the Dutch team so she had no idea that there was someone ahead of her and there's like a there's like a clip when she lands uh, arrives with like her arms in the hair in the air and everything happy I'm first I'm first I mean, she doesn't say that but she talks to her coach and is like oh no I made a mistake I thought I was first and I can't imagine that feeling because she was sure she was first. And then it turns out that that was uh, like an amateur cyclist basically in ahead of her. Another interesting thing is that this Austrian cyclist who got gold, she's actually a PhD mathematician who does research full time and cycles on the side kind of. Um, so that's that's for the, crazy. <laughs> yeah. A woman of many talents. That must be such a hard feeling to think that you first and then... Your coach are like, is like, oh, no, actually, you're second. Yeah, it's really punched the gut then. Yeah. And for the men's road race, another interesting thing is that Carapaz from Ecuador, he won Olympic gold, the first for Ecuador in cycling and the first for South America in cycling. So that's a big milestone. And in this case, the race was 234 kilometers around the outskirts of Tokyo when temperatures were up to 30 degrees Celsius. That's what, 90, 90 Fahrenheit or so? So they were cycling for six hours in that heat. And this guy, Carapaz, he was cycling with the American, um, what's his name? McNulty. He was cycling with Brandon McNulty for quite a, quite a significant amount of time towards the end. Just, just the two of them taking turns, you know, being like temporary teammates, so to say. But then yeah. on the uphill section, the last four kilometers, Carapaz just takes off and leaves him behind. And then McNulty's by himself, and then in the background you can see the peloton coming. It was like, and they all overtake him, even though he was like one number one, number two for the entire race with this other guy before the guy left him. And the end, he landed. He was sixth place. Just in the last four kilometers, he went from number one or number two to number six. That's so tough. many hard feelings. Yeah, so last four kilometers of two hundred thirty kilometers, he gets overtaken. It's insane. That's the, I say insane a lot now, but it's just like I'm imagining <laughs> 234 kilometers and you, you're like, yes, silver. Oh, yes, gold. And then you just get sixth place. You get nothing. 
Fuck. Yeah. But anyway, just to sum up the track events, the, the results. So as we all know, Great Britain has the fancy Hope X Lotus spaceship bike. And I guess that paid off, right? They got three gold in the end, three silver and one bronze. The most amount of medals for the track events out of all yeah. countries. Also notes that uh, Great Britain athletes, they get paid to be all year round on the velodrome. Most of others... Uh, most of other athletes that do track cycling, they also do road cycling. But Great Britain, they're paying the teams to be only track cycling teams. Yeah, it's which full kind of plays. Yeah, and then what I think is also very impressive. So of course, Great Britain number one is impressive, but number two is Netherlands with three gold, one silver, and two bronze. The Netherlands is a tiny country of only seventeen million people. And they are above France, Germany. Yeah, and, like Germany is is has the same around this, like comparable amounts of people and funding as Great Britain, you could say. And they only had one gold and one silver. It's kind of, I mean, I would, I'm not going to say it's embarrassing, but like it's it's you can see there's a big difference between Great Britain and Germany, and that you could say it's because of the bike or because of the the full time training that they have on the track. Yeah. No, it's. It's impressive. So that was Great Britain, Netherlands, and then Denmark was one gold, two silvers, and Germany, one gold, one silver. And France is like way, 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 way below. I think it's 13th or 14th place, something like that. I think, I think they were also like like number five, no? or no? No, I think they're like super below. Oh, yeah, you're right. Damn. Shame. Shame, right? Too bad. Okay, and now the moment you've been waiting for. We're going to talk about the bikes. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about the bikes and we're going to go straight into it with, I mean, the, the most alien, crazy looking of the bunch, which is the Hope X Lotus bike. And yeah, that that crazy fork and seat stays geometry. Yeah, it, it. I feel like it. It could be one thing that could be banned by the UCI pretty fast for whatever reason, because UCI likes to ban things. But yeah, I could see that ban for whatever reason. Yeah, I mean, they like to ruin the fun all the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. As I was saying, so it was like the m most crazy bike out there. Uh, the fork is freaking eight centimeters wide, and so as the seat stays. The goal of that was to channel the air more efficiently around the rider's legs. So estimation suggests that it's around two to three percent faster than previous track racing bikes, like old bikes compared, right, to last generation. So let's say like the last World Championships or the last Olympics. Aside for the forks and the bars coming from Lotus, precision manufacturing uh, company Renishow was an essential component to the bike's development, with some of the more complex parts, such as the joints where the seat tube meet the seat stays, made possible with 3D printed titanium. Yeah, it took some work because they said it's oven seven thousand hours of work 
So that's that's I guess a lot of people that got into got into that project. Yeah. Uh, the disc will is now molded directly as one part compared to previous designs. So before with disc wheels, you know, you have two halves basically molded and then they put them together and you have the wheel, right? Now it's been molded directly as one part. I don't know how they do that, but it's quite impressive. Magic. And because you never have two identical halves. Yeah, I guess it's rounder, kind of. <laughs> and you can also save weight because you don't need to have that extra layer of carbon that act as a joint, you know, between the two halves. Finally, um, that Lotus is also a nod to Chris Broadman 1992 Barcelona Olympic bike, the Lotus 108, uh, which he rode to the gold medal. It was a crazy bike. And I guess, yeah, Lotus kind of wanted to get on board again to, to create something crazy again, I guess. Um, you can actually buy this frame because with the new UCI regulation, every frames need to be available to the public. So it will run you 13.5 thousand euros for the frame set. That's 16 thousand US dollars. That's a lot of money. It's a lot of money, but it's not that much compared to some others. No. I, I actually, like, um, on the topic of, like, all of these innovative bikes and the cost of them and everything, I, in the Discord channel, the server, we actually talked about this a bit, like me and some other guys. And at some point, like, you can see all of these different bikes and the calculations, oh, 2% uh, faster, 2% more efficient. At some point, it feels a bit like a pay-to-win Olympics, you know? Like, there was one... For example, one cyclist from Suriname, he had to get his bike crowdfunded because the country you know, couldn't afford to send him to the Olympics and, and was, yeah, fund everything. So he had to get crowdfunding to even go there. And then these other countries, they're spending tens of thousands of pounds to develop and, and produce all of these crazy bikes. And yeah, they, they get gold and everything. So, I mean, of course, like the athletes, athletes are doing most of the work, but I think it would also be interesting if, if there was like a standardized bike for everyone, you can just see who is the strongest rider. It would be interesting to see one category or just one event where everybody is on the same bike. Because like right now, the Olympics are supposed to be about like the best human effort, the strongest athlete, the most skilled athlete, whatever. And then you have people with getting advantages over other people because the country could afford to put millions into research and design. And I mean, there are also like other, there are like world championships that are not Olympics. And then maybe that could be a thing there, but I think it would be more fair if everyone had the same, same gear provided for them. And you really see who is the strongest rider. But maybe yeah. as, yeah, maybe as one event in the Olympic, but not as, Every event, maybe not, not for every, not for every event. Yeah, I don't think that will ever happen, but I can dream. <laughs> but yeah. Anyway, um, so yeah, the Hope XLS bike, as we said in the pre-show, has been in the news quite quite often in in recent times, mainly because the design, of course. And actually, a Dutch bike brand is claiming that the design for the bike was stolen from them. Especially, like, particularly the fork design, because 
the British Cycling, so the British Cycling Federation, whatever, their applica original application for this was specifically designed to get around the Dutch bike brand's patent for this fork design because they knew, perhaps, perhaps they knew that it was very similar or like stolen, as some would say. So they designed their applica patent application in a specific way to get around the Dutch one. And so the Dutch one is the bike brand is called Koo, Koo, and they also have a very similar looking bike. It's called the Koo TF1, which is a, obviously a very high end carbon frame with almost identical fork, you could say. And so the, this guy from Koo called Bok, he explains that the lawyers believe that British Cycling avoided using the pivot box used on the Koo TF1, which eliminates the head tube and uses a nose cone design instead. So like mm. very marginal differences to get around their patent. And like British Cycling, uh, uh, sorry, Koo Cycling, the, bike, the Dutch bike brand, they first filed a patent in 2016 for this for this fork design and their entire bike. And British Cycling's patent was denied in March this year with reference to Koo's prevailing patent. So British Cycling's patent was denied and it was denied because like the people in charge said, oh look, Koo already has a patent on this. And Damn. It, yeah, so that's like, I mean, that's like m more than you need to know, I think. And the, the yeah. main thing of why it can be used in the Tokyo Olympics is because the EU or the European patents, they don't apply in, in Japan. Oh. So that was like the main takeaway that the patents filed in Europe, they don't apply to if the bikes were produced, were used in Japan and Japan doesn't care. So, so they then couldn't, they couldn't use it in the, in the European even then. No, maybe not. No, that would have been more tricky, I think as, as well. And I mean, of course, it's still a very active case as well. And it's just like one Dutch bike brand against the entire British cycling federation. So, I mean, if, like if you, I'll put it in the show notes as well, but if you look at the design between the Dutch bike and the, the Lotus Hope bike, you can see it's like really, the, really similar. Yeah. And then you have to think that the Dutch one came out four years ago, five years ago now. So, yeah. Damn. Can, can make your own conclusions from that, but let's see how it turns out. Yeah. And on the related note, the next bike we'll talk about is the Dutch Koga, Koga bike. This is called the Koga Kinsey, and it's produced by Koga, a Dutch bike brand. It's a historic one. And in collaboration with TU Delft, it's the Technical University Delft, which is like the best technical university in the country, Actiflow, they are experts on fluid dynamics and CFD, and Pontus Engineering, who are experts in advanced composite products. So the, pro the product was first started, started in 2017, the project, just for the 2020 Olympics. And it starts with a 3D scan of Jeffrey Hochland, so the Olympic rider, just to make it perfect, perfectly optimized, optimized and sized for individual riders. And if you look at the picture of the bike, you can see it has a very, 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 very long stem. It looks kind of freakishly long. And it's not because Dutch people are uber long, but also kind of is. Yeah, it kind of took that really short top tube approach and to palliate to that you need like a really really long stem yeah and although like dutch dutch guys are known as like the tallest in the world or something like that 
like Jeffrey, uh, at least Harry Lafraise is, is one eighty one, which is I think barely six foot, and he also has a very long stem, so it really is just part of the bike design to achieve maximum aerodynamics and stiffness. As as we mentioned earlier, they are pushing out two thousand five hundred watts, and the the research showed that with previous designs of of previous bikes that at such power outputs, it, like they used to flex, and flex means loss of power and speed. And both of these riders, Harry Lefreise and Jeffrey Hochland, they received gold and silver on these bikes in individual sprints. And if you really want the bike, you can buy it for around 12,000 euros, which is 14,000 US dollars, without the bars, without the extra long bars. <laughs> yeah, you'll <laughs> need to buy the bars or to put a riser on it. Yeah. And there's a, <laughs> there's like a, how do you say, like a reveal trailer or video of the bikes, you know, like, of course they're proud of it, but you can see, and you can see in the trailer, the three, Dutch riders, so I'm not sure who the third one is, but they're all walking down like this dark alleyway in their skin suits, massive arms, massive legs. They're like pumping their chest and slapping their thighs. <laughs> like they're like, yeah, we're gonna get this bike. But yeah, it's, it's a cool bike. Let's get it. <laughs> exactly, and get it they did. Yes. And then next up, we had the German Fess or FES. Haven't seen one of those in a long, long time. But Fess is kind of those really, really niche, small company you never heard about, except for pro track cycling. But it was developed by the Institute of Research and Development of Sports Equipment, so Fess, which since uh, 1965 research and develops equipment for German athletes. The bike is called the Fess V20 for the 2020 Olympics. Uh, it has a through axle front and back. That's because it had extended chainstays uh, with a built-in chain tensioner that allows also for up to a 70T chain ring. Big boy. Yeah, big, big boy. The seat post clamp is also integrated into the frame, so it's completely hidden. Uh, it has a 3D printed custom titanium stem and a bespoke chain ring. Yeah. Yeah. The Porsche frame, though, is slightly different. So the sprint frame has apparently normal spacing, where the Porsche frame has 70 millimeter front spacing and 79 back. So really, really narrow. And we're going to see more and more narrow frames uh, going on going forward. It has a 54 millimeter bottom bracket compared to the traditional 68 millimeter wide, meaning you could get the crank closer to the frame, which would manipulate the Q factor and bring then your legs, right, even closer to the frame, leading to more aero. So it's one of those really, really narrow bikes. And yeah, as I said before, we're going to see other like this, but. The complete sprint version costs around 22,000 euros, so 22,000 US dollars. And the TT version is 17,000 euros or 19k US. Yes, or you can just, if you can only afford the fork, that's 4,000 euros. You can just have the fork and save for the rest. Nice, you can make like a nice door handle out of that. <laughs> you can make like a unicycle. <laughs> <laughs> And it was into Mario's notes, but uh, it was a, an interesting thing that he said, but 
it's also part of the fixed gear culture to use like top engineering parts on the streets after like a few years and that's pretty fucking awesome and i'm not sure if we're gonna see one day one of those bikes on the streets but you can see some old looks that did the olympics on the streets today or i think um the fix your bell and crew uh also have a fest with a super old one carbon monocoque i think like a really common really common part to use from the olympics is not the frames themselves but like shimano olympic chain rings or like disc wheels mavic disc wheels or something i don't i don't don't know if we'll ever see like (laughs) 17,000 euro frame sets on the road. I don't know. But one thing that is that I noted during those Olympics, looking at them, you know, before Mavic Disc and Mavic IO were everywhere, right? This year, I haven't seen that much. And for the few I've seen, no Mavic logo. It was blacked out. Yeah, only the French team had them, right? No, even. French team had Karimas. Oh, okay, that's okay as well. French, French on French. So, I don't know. I, I mean, I know that Mavic is really doing shit at the moment, but... Yeah. <laughs> get, get yourself back together, Mavic. <laughs> what chain rings did the French team use? Uh, Kronos. Ah, okay. Still. Yeah, still. At least that's that's the constant then that never changes. Yep. Uh, Australia's team, they were using Argon 18. So Argon 18, where, where are they from? Canadian, right? Or Australian? Yeah, Canadian, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. They had a collab with Zip, and they had custom-made Super 9s that they were riding on. So again, not Mavic. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, they look good. And yeah, so the Hope X Lotus, for reference, that they put in around 7,000 hours of research into developing it. Or like... In total, like research and development, 7,000 hours. And this one, Australia's Organ 18, was, was about 4,500 hours of engineering, design, modeling, and testing. They raised the maximum resistance up to 350 kilograms of force, which is more than three times the load recommended for the bottom bracket by ISO test standards. So this is a significant amount, three times as much. And yeah. they also did the same thing for the cockpit, where they doubled the load compared to ISO standards for fatigue and ultimate strength testing. So they really push the limits of each individual part and materials and design just to get maximum efficiency and speed out of everything. A narrow fork was also used to apparently reduce drag by up to 30% compared to previous generations. So again, 30%, that's one third. These are big, big that's claims massive. they're making. Yeah. yeah. So of course, the key word here being apparently, right? It's always like, yeah. in the cycling industry, it's always like, buy this 10,000 euro a bottle cage it's titanium will reduce wind drag by 110 percent apparently apparently (laughs) everything wind tested wind tunnel test everything's wind tunnel tested nowadays yeah uh the drop handlebar was molded with a kind of cross guard so it's part for aerodynamics and part for the riser so that they can be stuck in a in like the perfect position and according to bike rumor it will cost about fifteen thousand euros or eighteen thousand us dollars for the frame set which is the frame, the fork. And the zip wheels. And the you zip get wheels. the zip wheels with that, apparently. But yeah, so like, this is by rumor. So rumor. There hasn't been a confirmed price yet. But as per UCI, it has to be uh, commercially commercially available for everyone. Yeah. And then next up, we have the French look. La France. The look 
T20. So looked worked closely with Karima on that one to ensure that the wheel set and the axles component uh, used the same optimized profile as the frame. And the brand partnered together to design the front and rear through axle dropouts. So again, we're seeing like through axles on track bikes, which is it could it could be seen as unnatural because you can't move through axle, right? You you would need to move the entire dropout, but I guess it, it's a thing now. But innovation, yeah. Through axle compared to normal axle, it adds a lot of torsional rigidity. And they said it increased the lateral stif stiffness by 12.5%. Also, it cuts uh, the drag and weight because a through axle is lighter. There's still a minimum weight though, right? Yes. And actually, with a Kurima rear disc and a 5 spunk on the front, the builds come at 6.8 kilo, which is bang on the UCI weight limit. <laughs> that's lucky. So that's lucky or <laughs> calculated. I don't know. <laughs> Probably calculated at the. Yeah, so the bike costs 9,600 US dollars or 8,000 euros. So at that price, I think it's probably calculated rather than just luck. True. And so this version of the Look T20 is reportedly 20% lighter than its predecessor. I think it was the predecessor was the R96 or something like that. With an 11% reduction in drag, 27% increase in power transfer, thanks to improved stiffness and weight ratio. And it is also 800 grams lighter, which is a lot of weight to shave out of a track bike. Do you know how the naming works for these bikes? Because this one, this one is called Look T20, which I guess is like 2020 Olympics. And then the previous uh -huh. one is K96, you said, right? I think R. I think R ninety six. Oh, R ninety six. Oh, yeah, is that is that like ninety six Olympics or something or? No, I don't know. I I know that the entire like for years the generations of look track frames like the 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 really high end frame frames were, I think KG Y ninety six and then two ninety six three ninety six four ninety six. But I don't know where it comes from. Hey, it's me again, and I am coming with an update because I made a little bit of fritting with Look's naming system, and I'm going to explain to you real quick. So apparently, one of Look's first real bike was in 1986, and they call it the Look 86, which makes sense. Uh, and then when they started making like monocoque carbon frames, they used three digit numbers. The first digit being the the generation and then 96 after that. So you had the 196, the 296, the 396, the 496. And then we came to the R96, which I suppose was for Rio 96. And finally, the T2020, which used completely different monocoque technology, was for Tokyo 2020, T20, Tokyo 2020, I mean, it makes sense, right? So yeah, little update. Mm, strange. Yeah. And then they also used their improved version of the Z-Track monoblock crankset, 
that was first developed for the London 2012 Olympics. So those frames have like a proprietary crankset and they have the trial-up concept, which allows for the crank arm lens to be adjusted. I've seen that in person. It's actually really, really strange. So the hole which in you put your pedal um, is actually three holes in one and you can move your pedal ever so slightly so it reduce or increase your crank arm length. I'll probably put um, a picture in the show notes if I can find one. But yeah, I see it. It's weird. Yeah, it's a weird thing, right? You wouldn't think that would be possible with something that is supposed to withstand like 2,500 watts, right? Yeah. But apparently they did it. It seems like they could have just made two different sizes rather than a crank that could change two sizes. I don't know. I think there's also the fact that it's a one piece crank. So it is an absolute pain in the ass to get in and out of the frame. I don't know if it's even possible to get out of the frame. (laughs) So that's for the French team and the look T20. And next up is Italy with the Pinarello Matt. So Matt or is M-A-A-T. So yeah, Matt is a trademark asymmetrics design that Pinarello says is to optimally counteract the asymmetric forces generated during pedaling to provide symmetrical behavior when riding the bike. So it's a lot of words to just, I don't know if it's actually true. I mean, I feel like a lot of, like, like I said before, lots of companies, they say a lot of things, but yeah. They're Italians. They're probably saying a lot of stuff. Lots of hand gestures. <laughs> it's asymmetry. <a> <laughs> so the one-piece carbon cockpit incorporates shaping to mimic shifter hoods, allowing racers to adopt the more popular aerodynamic riding position afforded by riding in the hoods. So these are, yeah, bars molded to have the position where you rest your hands on the hoods like a road bike. Except in this case, yeah. obviously there are no there are no brake shifters or brakes, so. It's a useful addition for not just comfort, I suppose, but also that they can lock into the perfect position with some grip. And it comes in a single 38 centimeter width with 8.5 degrees of flare. Now, 38 centimeters, that's pretty narrow, but not crazy. Yeah, that's narrow. I mean, that's standard for track cycling. It was built from a Turakaya T1100-1K carbon fiber, which I have no idea what that means. Well, you know, like... The webbing of carbon fiber. Yeah. So the most carbon fiber you see out there is 3K. And then you have 12K, which is like way bigger strips, right? Yeah. And 1K is actually fairly new. It gives like basically more rigidity, more stiffness, more resistance, more everything. Hmm. Yeah, 1K carbon is the shit. I think you told me though, though in the in the big picture, bicycle carbon is like the worst in the industry, right? It is. It is still. It's still the worst. But <laughs> <laughs> well, but your your Antonov, your Ellen, that was like aerospace carbon or something or airplane carbon. Well, Antonov before being like a, a bike company, which is not is uh, is a plane company. They're making freaking planes and big ones. So and the the Antonov I have is not even carbon like most of the other ones. It's a mix of uh, carbon fiber, Kevlar, and another fiber. I don't remember, but yeah, it's not full carbon. 
So it's just like all the leftovers from building the bike, from the building the planes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> oh, what do we stuff. do with all this? Oh, I don't know. Just create a few bikes. <laughs> Someone, some guy on Instagram will buy them. <laughs> 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 so yeah, the Italian bike, the Matt, is has a significantly longer top tube in conjunction with a shorter stem. So this is kind of like the opposite of the Dutch Koga bike, right? That has a super long stem. Yeah, exactly. But yeah, I guess the researchers behind this saw saw a different way to get the same result or something. And to everyone's surprise, it has Mika cranks. And yeah, I mean, Italian parts on the Italian bike make sense, but... But what the fuck? <laughs> yeah, they don't have like... The, yeah. For real? <laughs> yeah, so 10,000 euro bike, 10 euro cranks. Comes out to 9,600 US dollars, 8,000 euros, and plus 1k euros for the integrated handlebars. Well, it's cheap. I think it's, that's the cheapest bike so far in total. I think the look is the cheapest. Ah, really? Wait, how much was that? Oh, oh yeah. yeah, it's the same price. Same price. Yeah, okay, so yeah. Yeah. It's just different paint jobs then. <laughs> no. <laughs> but you can, you can take over the most expensive <clears throat> bike now. Yeah, the most expensive bike. So used by part of the Malaysian team is the Works... WXR Vortic. And it's a really fancy name for like something. Yeah, for something that could cost you, if you buy it complete, 80 grand. Um, 80 grand US. So that's a lot of money. That's, I mean, that's a crazy, that's like a really, really, really nice car already, you know? Hmm, Tesla or. So the frame set comes at 43 grand US with an 8K proprietary wheel, uh, or that's 36.6K euros. That's just crazy numbers for a bike. Uh, and I'm going to explain a little bit, but designed and made by British brand Vortec and Works, W-O-R-X. Fancy. Uh, very, very, very narrow front hand uh, to reduce the front area. The front wheel, so as I said, was proprietary and it used a true axle that is 32 millimeters wide. 32. That's like a third of a normal front axle. Huh. That's mad. So the handlebar, also designed specifically for the bike, is just 30 centimeters wide. That's also extremely narrow. And it cost 12k euros or 14k US for a handlebar. Your handlebar is the price of, uh, I don't know, that's already like a few years of rent. <laughs> the saddle on that bike has no rails and it's directly mounted to the seat mast, but there's also seems to be some sort of a seat post inside the mast for extra stiffness and stabilizing the aero shape and mast. The saddle itself cost 7,000 euros. And the seat post and mast cost 3.5 thousand euros. There must be like <laughs> some money laundering going on here or something. Absolutely, especially like, since it's the Malaysian team. What the hell? It's like, come on, I need eighty thousand for a track bike. Okay, guys, just just say on the receipt it costs this much. I'll keep the rest. <laughs> <laughs> 
So the handlebar has a special grip zone that doesn't need bar tapes, but we saw Malaysian riders actually using bar tapes anyway. And why is it so expensive? Well, apparently it used some cutting edge technology that comes straight from F1. So it, it is really, really expensive. According to Vortec, quote, many years or CFD expertise gained via working with Formula One and Motorsport, solving the thousand engineering challenges and delivering supercharged solution for the clients. The design engineers at Vortec turned their sight on the goal of creating the world's fastest track bike. So you come from F1 and you're like, let me take a look at that two-wheel boy. I'm gonna get I'm gonna make it real fast. <clears throat> it's kind of like Hambini on YouTube. He also works for, <laughs> for Air, Airbus and then he does bike shit on the side. Yeah. The first phase of the project required digital capturing a series of competitor bikes in high-end resolution 3D. Following the scanning, the 3D models of the bike would be used for cutting-edge CFD analysis combined with the latest wind tunnel testing and research, including analyzing the kinesiological riding habits of the rider themselves, and after this, to bring together everything for creating, quote, the ultimate aero track bike. It is absolutely insane. It's basically the the way to think is, oh yeah, so we're gonna scan everything. We're gonna think what is best on every bike and bring it together on one bike. Oh, and we're gonna improve a little bit on top of that. And then we're gonna sell it for 80,000. Dude, that's, nah. I mean, 80,000, I don't know how you could possibly say your bike is 80,000. Yeah. I mean, material-wise, impossible that there is 80,000. Research and development-wise, it's impossible that they spend that much time, so there it's worth 80,000. I don't know where that money goes, but I would like to know. <laughs> we'll never find out, I think. Yeah. And on the all the side of thing you have the felt tk frd which is kind of like on the complete opposite side of the spectrum it's uh, it's a track bike a high-end track bike but it's kind of for everyone yeah i could go get one right now if i wanted to you have the money okay maybe not but <laughs> okay this is like comparatively compared to the other ones this one is kind of mid like mid-range could say yeah and it was announced super late like we talked about in i believe the after show a few weeks back and it has like the same approach as the pinarello with like a longer top tube and shorter stem and it also comes in two versions so you have the standard sprint version but you also have the pursuit version that is left drivetrain and the engineers at felt they said quote we found that bike tests faster when the airflow is from the drive side of the bicycle so by moving the drive side on the bike from the outside of the crank or right hand side of the bike to the inner part of the track or left hand side of the bike the bike becomes more aerodynamic and also handles better because the bike's weight and center of gravity has moved inboard of the turns. Makes sense. 
makes sense. It makes a lot of sense. Uh, so for the normal version, it's like a standard 100 millimeter front axle and 120 in the back. But the left drivetrain version is 70 in the front and 95 in the back. We've seen so many weird spacings. I don't know how all of that is going to come to how all of that is going to evolve. You know, it reminds me of those previous years um, before like the big wave of UCN bands and everything when you had really, really special components for special bikes. For example, I don't know, like 650 wheels. I don't know if, if you ever seen that, but the jumbo wheels, those are our aero disc wheels, but they have kind of a balloon shape. So you need a special fork for them. Huh. Like that kind of stuff that is really proprietary to some bikes. And that kind of disappeared for some years. We all had the 100 millimeter front, 120 back. But now we're, we're seeing like weird spacings, integrated handlebars that you can only fit on one bike. It's weird. It's weird. The felt though is like the cheaper of the bunch. Uh, you can get the frame set for 5.5k USD. That's 4,600 euros. Yeah, relatively cheaper than all the other ones so far, especially like the Malaysian one. And for reference, so the Malaysian one, 80,000, the Malaysian team only got one silver medal during the entire track event. The US team with their 5,000 euro bike had one gold. And the Dutch team, yeah, also their bikes were also like 10, 15,000 euros. They got multiple golds. I think two or three. Yeah. Three golds, yeah. So, not price, money isn't everything, I guess. Or, well, the price of, of it isn't everything. Probably. Finally, Russia and their BT Ultra. BT has been really quiet about the details of this bike so far since the beginning. And, but it seems to have its advantages in its design, its specific design. And, yeah. It looks similar to the BT designs from over 30 years ago, which I guess, if it works, it works. Yeah. It looks a lot like the the edge or the blade. That already looks a lot like each other. Yeah. But, yeah. Also, the Russian team is way more flexible on what bike they can use, you know? Hmm. Like, they used Dolan or Looks before... Yeah, so they're not really linked to one specific, like, manufacturer. Yeah. And it was not even officially Russia, right? It was... Yeah, Russian Olympic Committee, because they were doping. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, there's not much info about this one. True, true. One thing I wanted to, to talk about was, this year, and in the previous years too, I've seen so many cool painted looks by other teams than the French team, you know? The French yeah. team use the normal paint job of the looks, but um, I, the other teams usually keep like the exact same pattern of the paint job. They just change the colors and looks so cool. It's a collection of the same bike, but different colors. I don't know, it just looks <laughs> dope to me. Yeah, there was one bike on the road race for the men's ridden by the Dutch Dutch guy. I'm not sure who it was, but it looked really nice as well. Like colorful and pink and stuff. I was trying to find it, but I need to look longer. <laughs> no luck. Uh, finally, part three of this episode, crashes and disqualifications. 
So of course, riding at high speeds with technical maneuvers such as the hand sling and the Madison event, there's bound to be crashes, whether in with other people or just by oneself. And there's been a lot. There's been a lot of crashes. Yeah. And starting with day one, uh, Australian team had like a handlebar snap, causing like a massive crash for one of the rider. Uh, and then the team was forced to pull out of the qualifying race. Like we said before, the Australian bikes are manufactured with Argon 18, and they took the same approach as the Dutch with that really, really long stem design. They quote, while Argon 18 has designed the handlebar for the bike and provided that bar for to the team, it was not our bar in use during the incident. Fulbert said in the statement, we unfortunately are unable to provide further details on the manufacturer of the equipment, nor why this particular bar was swapped out for the race. AliExpress boys. That sounds extremely shady. Yeah. I don't know about you. One thing I can tell you, and I don't want to shit on anyone, but a partnership was made with Bastion for 3D printed parts in the cockpit. Hmm. Bastion makes really, really, really nice road bikes. I don't know if those 3D printed parts can withstand the force of, um, you know, like the road force of a track sprinter. Hey, so I have an update on that. So if you look at Bastion's Instagram, they actually took the blame for, well, that handlebar snap. The It's not really the handlebar that snapped, but more the join between the handlebar and the frame. So they manufacture that and I'm not going to blame them because the amount of stress and forces that must apply on that part are phenomenal and it is really high-end engineering so shit happens the the rider is okay so i mean yeah it's not that bad one interesting detail that got sent to me on instagram and thank you for sending me this but the canadian team and the australian team were both using argon 18 and if you look at the team pursuit the last team pursuit where the Australian team is in, they are using one Canadian bar because it's a different paint job underneath. Quite an interesting detail. And again, thank you for sending me this on Instagram. Yeah, I like that kind of details. Yeah. So, yeah, so that was a surprising crash. Just snapped. But yeah, I'll put the link in the show notes. It's it's a violent crash. And you can just see the guy like crashing and then he's like, what the hell just happened, you know? <laughs> yeah, it goes so fast, right? Yeah, you go so fast and like, it's not like you're losing your balance and you're like, oh shit, I'm going to crash. It's like, like that you're on the floor because your handlebar snapped. Yeah, another crash is, was between Denmark's Frederick Madsen and British rider Charlie Tanfield. And so this is how this happened when after Charlie Tanfield was dropped as a rider, but he remained on the track, even though he wasn't supposed to be there anymore. And Madsen, the Danish guy... He was cycling. When you're cycling, like, like yeah, putting full power in everything, you look at the line on the ground. You follow the line. You don't look up. You don't look left. You don't look right. Yeah, he didn't see uh, that Tanfield was on the track still, and he crashed into the back of Tanfield. And the UCI commissioners, they eventually ruled that it wasn't Denmark's fault, and they gave the gold medal, well, the chance to get the gold medal to Denmark instead of Great Britain. 
Yeah. Something that I just learned again because events are getting more precise uh, after a few days is the commissioner of the race forgot to inform the other racers with a flag or sign. I don't know that one of the British racer dropped the pace and then was just slowing down because he didn't inform anyone. Uh, it couldn't be the other's racers fault because they haven't been in and they're not really supposed to look in front of them in that kind of event. So yeah, I guess once again, it's kind of the staff fault, but not that big of a deal. Yeah, I don't have any video of that crush and haven't seen it personally, but you can find on the internet, like the two riders almost having an argument after, after the facts, like, I think that was the Denmark cyclist that was really, really mad. And he's like, you can see him. He's like standing as the British cyclist is still on the floor and he's like, yeah, fuck you or something like that. Yeah, it makes sense. Like, I mean, the, the British guy must have known that he was dropped and that he should get out. It's not his first yeah. time cycling on the track. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I feel like for such big events, I think your brain is half dis disconnected, you know? Yeah, yeah, of course. Yeah, like you, you, right before yeah. you drop, you're trying your best. And, yeah. But I think also it's just like lots of mis mismanagement at, at cycling events right now at the Olympics. Yeah, absolutely. On to the next one. And it is the British cyclist Katie Archibald, which is super OG because she has been around for a while. And she compared crashing into her own teammate uh, to turning up to school naked because it was apparently like she was really, really ashamed of this. And <laughs> it will be the last thing she think about before she dies. Uh, that's what she said. So uh, Archibald had just crossed the line in the team person heat against the USA. And that's at the moment they also got the, um, the world record, you know? Yeah. And so... So the race is officially over, you know? They just, like, all of them are just slowing down to get back to the pits. She pat in the back her teammate, and then she doesn't look in front of her. And boom, like, her teammate, uh, Nee Evans, is just in front of her. She bumped into her, and they slowly yet really shamely like slide <laughs> across side, the yeah. floor <laughs> yeah Unnecessary. And then they, yeah and then they look at each other like what have we done you know <laughs> <laughs> ah i didn't like the, the color on the bike anyway wanted a new one <laughs> <laughs> but yeah can you imagine like the the state of the bikes after the olympic they must be like so worn out yeah well like I read that like Shimano and so Shimano's Dura Ace, they said that they're not supposed to last long, only for one season of racing, because people were complaining that their Dura Ace group sets and stuff, they were, and the cranks specifically, were breaking after a year only. They said, oh yeah, these are for pros, they only use them for one season, then they buy them again. Yeah. So, yeah. I guess that's I the know. thing about top level. Probably. Next is Denmark. So Denmark had used kinesiology tape which was originally used to if you have an injured muscle or strained muscle you use this on the muscle to heal it and keep it together and just yeah it has like a therapeutic 
um, used normally. But in this case, they had the, the entire team had them on their shins, which according, according to the IOC and well, people watching and other cyclists theoretically had an aerodynamic advantage. And they were calling for disqualification of Denmark for using this aid, which is against the rules. But they were warned instead of disqualified. But that was pretty close call. I mean, you know, it's like if you use kinesiology tape, it's like you should be hurt, right? But it was like they are all hurt at the exams at the exact same place, and that place happens to be the perfect line to break wind along your legs, you know? Yeah. So. Yeah, no, they, 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 took, they took it off for the next race. <laughs> and the next is in men's team pursuit, the three-time Olympian Aaron Gate. He suddenly slid across the boards in the velodrome, having just touched his teammate's wheel, just like slightly touched it. It just brought him to the ground and made him crash. The New Zealand rider spread out over the velodrome, and Australia's team was able to pass the third New Zealand rider, ending the race with Australia, winning the winning the event of course so yep a slight collision with the teammate caused the entire team to lose yeah it's the slightest touch it's all it takes at that speed yeah the next one is early in the quarterfinals of the women's gearing Lorraine van Rissen of the Netherlands and Katie Marchand of Great Britain so two of the tops contenders were taken out in a crash so van Rissen lost control of her front wheel and crashed into merchant uh she was sent in the hospital for broken ribs collarbone and lung contusion the video is in the show notes it is super violent yeah the sheer speed which she just i don't i don't know what she does but Man, when she slams onto the ground, that's fucking violent. Right on the chest. Yeah. Like the side of the chest even. Yeah. Yeah, I was watching it when it happened and Yeah, she didn't touch anything. There was not I mean of course there's no like rocks or anything on the on the in the velodrome. She just lost control and then the wheel turned inwards and she crashed. Yeah. Yeah, but she's in the hospital now. But she's just like take her with like alongside her right yeah they just go down together well i must man it's like even a half a split a second it's crazy yeah in the men's madison final the usa pair of adrian hedgevari and gavin hoover crashed hard during a hand sling change so this is the technical part of the madison where you slingshot your teammate forward so they crashed hard during a hand sling change at half distance and failed to finish because of this crash, while Germany, Austria, and New Zealand were also caught up in crashes. So this in this specific race, there were a lot of events, lots of incidents of crashes and miscalculations happening. And then the final one, which is, I think, the most impressive one of this Olympics, is in uh, the women's Omnium final. Uh, literally half of the field went down. That was that was crazy and the video is absolutely nuts. But basically the crash happened when Italy's Elisa Balsamo clipped the rider in front of her, uh, Yumi Kajara from Japan, and then this set off like a chain reaction that took like 
five other writers, including like two times defending champion Laura Kenny of Great Britain. And wow, that that video is also like super intense. Yeah. And then the writer from Belgium and Poland, they were they also were involved in the crash and they couldn't continue anymore in the Olympics because of the injuries. And also an official, so like an official from the Olympics was injured by a rider that that crashed into them. So lots of Yeah, yeah, the official too. Yeah, lots so, of So yeah, a lot of crash. <laughs> wow. Do you do you want to be a track cyclist? Yes. sounds fun track casual track cyclist yeah casual is fun yeah i'd love to have um a wood velodrome near me you know i would love to have my own velodrome uh i will build one a movable one and put it in the center of shibuya (laughs) in the in the big crossing yes exactly (laughs) no but yeah so many crashes but overall it was a pretty good olympic i would say i i wouldn't say it was the best track cycling olympic i think rio was out of this world and really really competitive and it was a it was it was an awesome olympic tokyo had a lot of mishaps and mistakes but it, it was still like for us watchers, uh, listeners, or whatever, it was it's pretty good. Maybe a final word, Fabian, on on these Olympics. Well, I think despite like the worldwide, the global pandemic and the situation around the world, I mean, it was yeah, it was fun to watch. Of course, not everyone agrees with having the Olympics take place. Any and considering the situation, but despite everything, Japan kind of managed to pull it together yep all right i guess we're gonna wrap up this episode uh (laughs) we are already at two hours 15 minutes of recording this is like an upsized version of the normal episode yeah as always, everything we discussed today will be in the show notes on the blog, slowspinsighted.com. You'll also find the suggestion box there where you can tell us what we should talk about in the podcast. You can find us on our Discord server. The invite link is also in the show notes. Always our Instagram account at slowspinsociety. Sharing the podcast with your friend is the easiest way to support the show by giving us a good review on the platform of your choice. If you get value out of the show, why not considering putting value back in, either by supporting us on Apple Podcasts with their new subscription program, or visiting patreon.com slash slowspinsidypodcast to join the community. We're pledging at any level we're going to access to the pre and after show, which is around 40 minutes of extra content per week. We are now at 26 Patreons, and thank you so much, as always, for your support. The thank music you. for the show is Lovely Swindler by Amaria. And the illustration is by at Jolejo on Instagram. All right. Well, this is pretty much it for this episode, as I just said. And don't forget, you don't need an 80k bike to win the Olympics. A 15k is enough. See you next Monday. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.